One of the best evidences of the divine origin and inspiration of the Bible is the Bible's own internal coherence. See, the Bible is not one book. It is a library of books. It's a collection of 66 books written by some 40 different authors over the course of some 1,500 years using a variety of literary genres. And yet, stunningly, it tells one consistent story from start to finish. It is the story of a great and glorious and good triune God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in order to reflect and to display His glory. And He created man in His own image. He created them male and female. And He created them with the capacity to know Him and to enjoy fellowship with Him and to rule over all that He had made. But when tempted by Satan, man fell into sin and rebelled against our Creator and God. And sin entered into the world and spread like a deadly virus throughout all of the created order, infecting everything that was once good. And so in His righteous anger, God cursed the man and the woman and cast them from His presence but not before giving to them the promise of a coming Redeemer. A Savior who would one day be sent into the world to save God's people from sin and from death and from the curse and to bring them once again into the glory of His presence to again know Him and to enjoy fellowship with Him and to again rule over all that He had made forever. But the fulfillment of that promise would await long ages of sin and of sorrow. But in time, God called a man named Abraham and he made a covenant with him in which he promised that he would bless Abraham and through Abraham, he would bless all the nations on the face of the earth. Over the generations, Abraham's family grew until they were a mighty nation dwelling in the land which God had sworn to their forefather. And yet sin and death and the curse continued to reign and the world still languished under its deadly effects. Even the blessings that Israel enjoyed in the land were but dim shadows of the promise. God dwelt in their midst, but only behind a thick veil of separation. The people had the law and the prophets, but by and large they neither believed nor did they obey. But running like a thread throughout Israel's history was this Same promise given in the very beginning. The promise of a Redeemer who would come, who would atone for sin, who would destroy the power of death, and who would remove this curse once and for all. And finally, in the fullness of the time, He came. Born of the Virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit in a small town called Bethlehem. 
And at His birth, the glory of God shone, and all of the heavens burst forth in holy praise as the Son of God entered into time and history and took upon Himself frail humanity. The Redeemer had come. God had broken through the veil that separates heaven and earth and had come to dwell among us. And for 30 years, the Redeemer lived in relative anonymity in a small out-of-the-way town called Nazareth in Galilee. But when the time was right, the Spirit awakened something within Him and He put down His hammer and He laid aside his chisel and he left the carpentry shop and he journeyed to the Jordan River where his cousin John was preaching and baptizing the sons of Israel in preparation for the Redeemer's appearing. And when Jesus presented himself to John for baptism there by the Jordan River, John recoiled in dismay saying, I have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? I am not worthy to untie the the strap of your sandal. But Jesus answered, do it, John. For it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Thus was the redemption begun. And the last Adam was proclaiming that he had come to obey where the first Adam had failed. He had come to fulfill the righteousness of the covenant. And thereby to earn back the blessing of God's friendship and fellowship which the first Adam had lost and forfeited by his sin. From the time of his baptism, Jesus was a man on a mission. For three years he traveled throughout the regions of Judea and Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and sickness, driving out demons, raising the dead, forgiving sins. In every town and in every city, he was driving back the curse, launching an all-out assault upon the kingdom of darkness. But the problem of sin and of the righteous judgment of God yet remained. The curse could not be fully and finally lifted from the earth and from the people of God. Fellowship with God could not be restored until sin was dealt with once and for all. And so it was that on Passover, the Redeemer gave Himself up to the death of a cross. The Lamb of God slaughtered for the sins of His people. And when the infinitely glorious Son of God took upon Himself the infinitely hideous sin of man and suffered God's infinitely terrible wrath that God's infinite righteousness was eternally vindicated. Through the death of this Redeemer, God could now be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But the Redeemer was not finished. Death itself had to be conquered. And so on the third day, God raised His Son from the grave and He seated Him at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now God commands all people everywhere to repent and to put their faith in this Redeemer whose name is Jesus Christ, our Lord, and they will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of everlasting life. Because there is coming a day When the Redeemer will return to this earth as king and as judge. And he will destroy all 
evil and he will condemn all the wicked to everlasting punishment and he will eradicate from his creation every last vestige of sin and the curse and he will make all things new and he will call into being a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation where there is no more sin and no more death and no more curse and everyone from among the nations who turns to Christ by faith will once again enjoy the blessing of God's everlasting fellowship and friendship in his presence. This is the story of the Bible from start to finish. That's why we began with the video unfolding the story of creation and fall and redemption and restoration. Every book, every chapter, every verse serves to fill out and to color this one overarching narrative, this one thread that ties all of the 66 books by all of the 40 authors over all of the 1,500 years together and to make it one story. Now I introduce today's message by telling you this story because nowhere is the internal consistency and coherence of the Bible more beautifully displayed than in its very last chapter. Revelation 22, 1-5 is the final passage of the final vision of the final book of the Bible. And with the exception of the epilogue, which we'll cover next week from verses 6 to 21, in which John concludes the book and addresses us, the reader, directly with an invitation and a warning, this is the last chapter of the story. And if we look at it through the lens of the one story of the Bible, we will find that it is almost, in its last chapter, a mirror image of its first chapter. John presents in this passage the new Jerusalem, which equates to the church, the glorified church and the new creation. John presents this new Jerusalem as a new garden of Eden. And so when he concludes with verse 5, the story, the one story is beautifully complete. It's perfect. The last Adam, the Redeemer, promised in the garden, crucified on the cross, risen on the third day, has succeeded in his mission. The people of God, by the end of verse 5, will have returned to the presence of God, now to eat of the tree of life and to live forever in his presence. My aim in this message is to take you through the three stages of the story. The beginning, the middle, and the end and to show you how they are tied together by seven common threads. Seven common threads that tie together beginning, middle, and end of the story. The threads of the temple, the priesthood, the river, the tree of life, the curse, the face of God, and the dominion or the reign. We'll begin with the temple. Now you may be thinking... I don't remember a temple in the Garden of Eden. Where's there a temple in Genesis 1 and 2? Where's he getting that from? That's a good question. It's true that there is no explicit mention of a temple in the beginning. There's no explicit mention of a temple in Genesis 2. But I believe that there's strong evidence that the Garden of Eden itself is to be viewed, as one commentator called it, the archetypal temple in which the first man worshipped his God. 
G.K. Beale lists this evidence in support of that claim. He, he lists five pieces of evidence that the Garden of Eden is intended to be viewed by us here in the New Covenant as the first prototype of the temple of God. Five, number one, Eden was the place where Adam walked with and talked with God, as did the high priest walk before and intercede before God in the temple. Number two, in Genesis 2.15 it states that God placed Adam in the garden to cultivate, the Hebrew word is abad, to cultivate and to keep shamar, the garden. Cultivate and keep. Well, when we turn to the instructions relating to the tabernacle and the temple, we find that the priests are likewise instructed to cultivate Abad and to keep Shemar, the temple. Numbers 3, 8, and 18. 1 Chronicles 23. Ezekiel 44. Therefore, Adam is presented in Genesis 2 as the archetypal priest who serves and keeps God's archetypal temple which is the Garden of Eden. Evidence number three. When Adam failed in his responsibility to guard and to keep the temple and was expelled from the garden, the Bible says that two cherubim were placed at the entrance to the garden to guard the way into the presence of God and the tree of life. Genesis 3.24 The same two cherubim appear in statue form in the temple, guarding the way to the Ark of the Covenant and the glory and presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Do you ever wonder why there were two cherubim there? It's because there were two cherubim there. Number four. The temple, when you read about its construction in 1 Kings 6 and 7, you'll find that it was carved all over the place with plants, palms, Trees and fruits, giving it a garden-like appearance. Now, why might that be? It's because God intended for the temple to be a picture of what was lost in the garden. And number five, the entrance to Eden was from the east. Because when the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, were expelled from the garden, it says they were cast eastward of the garden of Eden. Have you ever wondered... Why God dictated that the tabernacle and then the temple was to face east? It's because it is a reflection of the original temple in the Garden of Eden. So when viewed through the lens of the entire story, the entire revelation of God, I think it becomes clear that God intended the Garden of Eden to be the first temple where man walked with, talked with, and worshipped his God. Now we all know that first the tabernacle and then later the temple was the center of life and of worship in Old Covenant Israel. It was the place where heaven met earth, where the people of God would gather from all over the camp and then from all over the country and then eventually from all over the world to worship and to meet with God. But we also know that fellowship between God and man in the temple was no longer face-to-face as it had been in the garden, but it was mediated in a number of ways. Only the priests representing the people could enter into the sanctuary, and only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. 
Sacrifices for sin had first to be offered and blood for atonement had first to be shed before the people could be acceptable before God. The presence of God was manifested in a bright glory cloud that hovered above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim who guarded access and was hidden from the people behind a thick and impenetrable veil in the inner sanctuary. Everything about that temple in Israel was a shadow of what once was in Eden, what was lost in the sin of Adam, and what would one day be restored through the promised Redeemer. When the Redeemer appeared to bring salvation to the people and to bring them back into God's presence. But when we come to the new covenant, we find Hebrews 9.26 that the Redeemer has come. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The last Adam has restored all that was lost in the first Adam's fall. And when he returns at the end of the age, what we now enjoy by faith, bold and confident access before the throne of grace through the blood of Christ, Hebrews 4.16, we will then enjoy in all of its glorious fullness. I showed you last week from Revelation 21 that the, the dimensions of the new Jerusalem which John saw form a perfect cube. 21.16, which calls to mind the only other cubic structure in the entire Bible, which is the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple. In addition, the city was made of pure gold, 21.18 and 21. It was adorned with all manner of precious stones, and it has the glory of God shining within it. Does that sound like another cubic structure in the Old Testament? Revelation 21.22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I think what we're supposed to see in Revelation 21 is that the new Jerusalem, which is the glorified church, is a new holy of holies. Meaning that in the new creation, God dwells in the midst of His people. And the whole earth has become the dwelling place and the throne of God. G.K. Beale, commentator on Revelation, makes an interesting suggestion that in Eden, what was lost in Adam's fall has now been restored. And he says this, quote, Not only was Adam to guard the temple, but he was to subdue and fill the whole earth. Genesis 1.28 it is therefore plausible to suggest that he was to extend the boundaries of the garden until it extended throughout the whole world. What he failed to do, Revelation presents Christ as having finally done. The Edenic imagery beginning in Revelation 22.1 reflects an intention to show that the building of the temple begun in Genesis 2 will be completed in Christ and his people and will encompass the whole new creation, end quote. So the theme of the temple ties together the beginning and the middle and the end of the story. God is building a place where he will dwell in the midst of his people, where he will be their God and they will be his sons. Second theme, building upon the idea of the temple. 
as a theme tying together the beginning, middle, and end of the story, we now turn to the priesthood that serves in the temple. In the Garden of Eden, as we've already seen, Adam served as the priest of God, charged to cultivate Abad and to keep Shamar, the garden, just as the Levitical priests were charged to cultivate and to keep the temple. Adam was also charged with guarding the temple, a responsibility he failed to keep when he allowed Satan to enter and to deceive the woman. Likewise, it was the responsibility of the Levitical priests to guard access to the tabernacle and the temple from uncleanness and defilement. As the priest in the garden temple, Adam knew God, worshipped God, talked with God, walked with God, served God. Well, we're familiar with the role of the priesthood in the middle part of the story. The priesthood that served in the temple that was a shadow of what once was and a shadow of the good things yet to come. Basically, the priests of Israel served in the role of mediator between the people and God. They represented the people before God in the bringing of sacrifices and in their their interceding before the Lord, and they represented God before the people as they brought the word of the Lord to the people, instructed them in the law, and pronounced the blessing of God upon them. There was a mediator between the people and God. In the temple of the new creation, which encompasses the entire new earth, there will still be a priesthood. But it will not be a select group from among the whole people of God representing everyone else before the Lord. Rather, in the new heaven and the new earth and in the new covenant, every saint will be a priest ministering in the new temple, having direct access to the throne of grace and to the presence of God. That was the cry of the four living creatures and the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 when they said, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you purchased men from every tribe, tongue, people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign upon the earth. Revelation 20 John declared blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Peter called the church he called us a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is the meaning of Revelation 22.4 when God says they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. What's that talking about? Well, it's a reference back to the priests of the Old Testament. The name of the Lord was engraved upon a gold plate which was attached to the turban and placed upon the forehead of the high priest of Israel, Kodesh at Adonai, holy to the Lord. Every one of us will be holy to the Lord and every one of us will serve in His presence. In the new covenant and in the new creation, every saint is a priest in the temple of the living God. And there is therefore no other need of any mediator beside Christ And there is no longer any need to guard the temple from defilement, for the whole earth will be clean and holy. We will still cultivate and keep the temple of God, which is the whole new heaven and new earth 
And we will still offer joyous worship as we see and minister before the face of God. The third thread that ties these stages together is the river that flows out of the temple. In Genesis 2.10 we read, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And these four rivers are identified as the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. So there's a river that flows out of Eden, watering the garden of the Lord, the temple. There was no actual river in the temple in Old Covenant Israel, but there were, or was rather, a significant role of water in the temple service as there were ceremonial washings that took place in that great bronze basin at the entrance to the temple. But in the Old Covenant prophets, Zechariah, Ezekiel, the notion of a river flowing out of the temple becomes explicit. Zechariah 14.8, the prophet said of the day of the Lord, on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. But the clearest passage is Ezekiel 47.1-12 which comes in that final section of the prophecy of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40-48, to in which the prophet sees a vision of an eschatological or a a latter-time temple. And in this vision, his temple is meticulously measured by an angel, just like John's vision in Revelation 21. The temple is filled with the glory of God forever, Just like John's vision in Revelation 21, it is clearly a blueprint for and is fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. And so it's very interesting when in Ezekiel 47, the prophet sees something very strange about this new temple. He says that water flows out of the sanctuary. And it's just a trickle at first, just a trickle, a little small stream of water flowing from the throne, flowing from the sanctuary. But as it flows further and further eastward, it gets deeper and deeper. And the river flows through the desert, and as it does, life begins to spring up. Trees and plants and vegetation on both sides of its banks. Eventually, the river flows into the Dead Sea, which in the prophet's day and still today was so salinated that it can sustain no life. But Ezekiel says that when this river, which flowed from the throne of God, flowed from the temple, from the sanctuary, and made its way through the desert, bringing life everywhere it touched, when it flows into the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea teems with life and becomes fresh. And Ezekiel 47.12 says, And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This river from the sanctuary that Ezekiel saw brings life to everything it touches. It is a river of living water. Well, you can surely see the connection to the Garden of Eden and the connection to our passage today in Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from where? 
from the sanctuary, from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river. Here's that allusion to Ezekiel. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb is a river of living water symbolizing the ceaseless, boundless flow of grace and life and joy which God will provide for His people in the new earth. And it's to this river that every one of you are invited to come and to drink and to be satisfied. All of you. Any of you. Without exception, there are no limitations on the invitation to the river found in Revelation twenty-two seventeen. No exceptions, but one. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So I would ask you here in the middle of this passage, in the middle of this message, do you thirst? Do you thirst for grace, for life, for joy? Do you identify with the people of Israel when God through the prophet Jeremiah said, my people have committed two great evils. First, they've forsaken the fountain of living waters. And secondly, they've hewn for themselves cisterns in the desert, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And you say, I know what he's talking about. My life is filled with broken cisterns. And I have no life. And I have no joy. And I have no grace. And I have no satisfaction. And I have no peace. It is to just people like you. That God offers this invitation today by the Spirit through the Word. Come. Drink. Free. The next thread is the tree of life. Which is one of the more fascinating and mysterious elements of this biblical story. Genesis 2.9 records that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then nothing else is said of the tree of life. But God does issue a command regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the midst of the garden. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And then when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thus forsaking the way of faith and obedience and reaching, grasping for that knowledge and glory which belongs only to God, the infection of sin entered their hearts and death with sin, and the Lord cast them from His holy presence in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
when, when Adam and Eve reached for that which was not theirs, seeking to become like God, gods unto themselves, and they took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they forfeited the privilege of eating from the tree of life. See, the portion of sinners is not life, but death and wrath. And so God forbid them from the tree of life. But when we turn to the end of the story, there's the tree of life again. Also on the other side of the river, Genesis, or Revelation 22-2, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The promised Redeemer appeared the first time to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself and to conquer death by the power of His resurrection. And when He appears a second time, He will raise all of His redeemed saints from the grave in glorified bodies. And at that time, sin being atoned for, sin being eradicated from their glorified natures and bodies, access to the tree of life will be restored to the sons of men. And all of the saints will be invited to eat of its fruit and to live forever. This is why Jesus promised to the church at Ephesus that the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Fifth is the curse. The fifth thread tying beginning, middle, and end of the story together is the curse. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and forsook the way of faith and obedience, God cursed them and all of their descendants to live a life of suffering and strife. Genesis 3.16. A life of struggle and futility. Genesis 3.17 and 18. And eventually, verse 19, death. God said, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. And then God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. The story of humanity is a story of life under the curse. Thousands upon thousands, age after age after age of misery, bloodshed, disease, Famine, drought, floods, slavery, infanticide, genocide, abuse, abortion, perversion. The history of humanity is a history of horrific evil and death. So much death. John Piper once called human history a long conveyor belt of corpses. All owing to Adam's sin. Genesis 3, the desire to be like God, independent from God, has resulted in billions upon billions of dead bodies. And underlying it all is the righteous, burning, white-hot wrath of God. But the Redeemer appeared for this purpose, that He might redeem the people of God from that curse, the curse of sin, and restore them to everlasting blessing and fellowship with God. How did He accomplish this? How did He remove the curse? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul says that Jesus has redeemed us from that curse by taking our curse upon himself, becoming a curse for us, and by dying a cursed death upon the cursed cross. In his death, the wrath of God directed against Adam, Eve, and every one of their believing descendants was satisfied. And the curse of sin was lifted from all who hope in Him. And just as creation was cursed when Adam fell, so will all creation be renewed when the sons of Adam are restored from the curse. See, in our destiny lies the destiny of the world. This was Paul's point in Romans 8. He said, creation waits with eager longing. For what? For the revelation of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain our glory, the glory of the children of God. That's what happens in Revelation 22. The sons of God have been revealed in their freedom and glory. That's what Revelation 21 was about. That's the point of the new Jerusalem. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And I saw a city filled with glory in splendor and radiance coming down out of heaven to the earth. The sons of God have been revealed. And so we see that in the new heaven and the new earth, the curse has been lifted. And John says in 22.3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. No more curse in the new creation. No more sin. No more struggle. No more disease. No more death. Only the everlasting reign and blessing of God and the righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. And the fount of all other blessings the very essence of what it means to be redeemed, of what it means to be saved, is then found in verse 4. When the curse is removed, they will see His face. You know, that was the most devastating aspect of the curse. It wasn't the toil. It wasn't the struggle. It wasn't the sweat of the brow. It wasn't even the death. It was banishment from the face of God. They were not allowed fellowship with their Creator. No more walks in the cool of the day with their father and their friend. Now there would only be distance and darkness between them and God. In their sin and in their shame and in their depravity and in their despair, men would now hide from God as Adam and Eve had hidden from Him in the garden. Even from the righteous like Moses, God hid his face. God was willing to show Moses' glory, but said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. And yet, throughout the ages, this remained the hope of the redeemed. 
David spoke it in Psalm 24. One thing, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house, the temple of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? So that I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. The central joy of the new creation will be to see the face of God and to enjoy His fellowship and His friendship forever. Finally, the final thread tying Genesis, Revelation, and everything else together in this one story is the threat of dominion. When God made man, He said, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that now moves upon the earth. Dominion over creation was intrinsic to what it means to be made in the image of God. Creation was designed to obey us. Under God. But when Adam fell and the image of God in man was disfigured and marred, that dominion was lost. And now the earth does not bow to our authority. It does not obey our command. It seeks to kill us at every chance. But creation heeded the command of the last Adam, didn't it? At his word, The wind stopped gusting. The waves stopped raging. The the disciples in the boat were left to wonder, "What, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? He's, He's the perfect man. The last Adam, the promised redeemer, regained for humanity the dominion that was lost. And in the new creation, the Bible says, Genesis 22, 5 says, we will share in his dominion and reign forever. And night will be no more. They will not need the light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is what Jesus promised the church of Laodicea. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. This is the story. Beginning, middle, and end. Every one of you were there at the beginning. Created by God. Fallen in Adam. Every one of us are there in the middle, subject to sin and to suffering, living and dying underneath the curse. The question is, will you be there at the end with the last Adam in the last Eden? 
The offer of life still stands. The day of grace is still upon us. The night is coming. But the sunlight still shines and the call still goes forth. Come. Enter into my kingdom. Eat from my tree. Drink from my river. Come and gaze upon the face of your God. So I implore you, on the basis of this story, not just Revelation, but all of it, place your trust, your faith, your hope in the one Redeemer from sin. He is the last Adam. His name is Jesus Christ. And all who come to Him will be forgiven of their sins, redeemed from the curse, and restored to the blessing of fellowship with our God and Father. God will be our friend again. And this story, all of it, will be your story. Our Father, I pray for every person here. It is without a doubt that there are some here who have not yet found their place in this story, or at least not at the end. They have not tasted of your grace. They have not drunk deeply from your well, from the river of living water. They are still hiding in their shame and sin in the trees of the garden trying desperately to hide themselves from your gaze. I pray that by the power of your Spirit and for the glory of your Son that you would call them forth. I pray that they would bow their hearts before you. They would embrace with the empty hands of faith and with a whole and glad heart the redemption purchased and accomplished by Christ. Awaken them. Awaken them. And for every one of your children here, which is the vast majority, I pray that you would renew hope. Because we still live under the vestiges of the curse. Our friends and family still die. Our bodies still ache and grow old and tired and diseased. We still battle with indwelling sin and desires we wish would just go away. For them, Father, I pray that you would renew their hope in the supper. I ask this in Jesus' name.